Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We start with the calls for mandatory vaccinations against COVID-19 on college and university campuses. This one is really heating up here now. Now, it really got rolling south of the border where hundreds of colleges and universities there had brought in mandatory vaccine rules. Bit of a slower uptake on this in Canada, but it started here too. The University of Western Ontario now. Uh, bringing in a mandatory vaccine requirement for students living in residence on campus. Does not apply to students living off campus and coming to the campus for classes. It would apply to students living in residence at the University of Western Ontario. And I've covered this story on this show before. I spoke uh, in an earlier program to Amir Ataran. He is a professor of law and medicine, University of Ottawa. And I asked him, should Canada do what the United States is doing here, mandatory vaccines on university campuses? Here's what he said. Uh, The fact that the Californians are going this way at their public institutions makes it incredibly um, lame that in Canada we're not doing the same. It's it's frankly some of the stupidest public health thinking I've ever come across. And I'm very sorry to hear Bonnie Henry, who I once admired, past tense, by the way, Um, making the case that there shouldn't be vaccination at colleges and universities. Okay, taking a shot there at Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is opposed to mandatory vaccines. Here's what Dr. Henry said about it. My recommendation will not be to make it mandatory. Certainly, we are looking at making sure it's available to people, particularly students who come from other countries. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Kara Zwiebel, Canadian Civil Liberties Director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program there, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Kara, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, what do you think about the University of Western Ontario, mandatory vaccine for students and residents? Your thoughts? Well, I think that... Um I, I mean, I have. We certainly have concerns about the idea of, of mandatory vaccinations. I think it, what what I understand the University of Western Ontario is proposing is that uh, everyone in residence who's living in residence would have to demonstrate that they've had at least one uh, dose of the vaccine, or that they qualify for some sort of exemption. So I think it is important whenever we're talking about this to to recognize that there are people for whom the vaccine is not an option. And if we uh, mandate it or if we make you know access to different things conditional upon it, we are going to be excluding people who, uh, through no choice of their own, by the way, uh, may not be able to, to be vaccinated. Okay. Do you think there is a, a legal case to be made here? I mean, the, the university in this case is not sort of a, a part of government, so the, the charter doesn't necessarily apply. The university, at least in this case, is acting as a, a landlord, not not as a, a part of government, which it, it might do in some other circumstances. Um, but it certainly has to comply with, with human rights codes. And, um, you know, g- generally human rights codes will prohibit uh, discrimination in, in housing and in provision of services on the basis of, um, disability, for example. So if you have someone who 
um, for medical reasons cannot be vaccinated, that person should be um, accommodated generally to the point of, you know, undue hard, undue hardship. And I think that that here the, the university would have an obligation to to accommodate. Um, so, I, so I think that, um, you know, there's some legal questions that the university is going to have to think through very carefully, not just in terms of discrimination, but also in terms of yeah. privacy. Uh, you know, how are they going to be collecting information about vaccine status? What's going to happen with that information? Who who might it be shared with? Um, and I mean, fundamentally, I think we also have to sort of ask, what is it that the university is trying to accomplish uh, with this? Is it, um, it, it's most likely an issue of their own liability, right? They're trying to make sure that uh, students that, that are living in, in residence that they are responsible for, are not getting, you know, seriously ill. Um, but, you know, saying that someone has one dose of a vaccine, and frankly, at this point, even saying that someone is fully vaccinated, you know, doesn't mean that they are not able to transmit the virus. So right. we, we shouldn't get lulled into this false sense of security that if we have, you know, a vaccine mandate somewhere, that means that's a safe place where, you know, COVID doesn't exist. That's just not well, that's just not the reality. Well, the university is in, invoking a, a public safety override here for bringing this rule in so they put out a statement saying that the health of our community is a shared responsibility and we're asking students to play a role in keeping themselves their friends their classmates and their community safe and healthy so this is why they are bringing this in uh, mandatory vaccine for living in residence i do i do find it kind of weird that you know, if you're a student at the school and you're not living on campus and you're just uh, just coming to the campus every day for class, which probably is a, p- a huge number of kids on that campus, <laughs> that you don't have to be vaccinated. So, I mean, I don't know. Does that make sense to you that only it was only a portion of the students would face this requirement? Yeah, I mean, I think this is similar to, to a lot of other public health measures that we've, we've seen, which, which is that, you know, it mitigates some risk, um, yeah. but it, it certainly doesn't eliminate all of it. And, you know, I, I imagine I haven't heard anything anyway about, you know, Western requiring um, staff to, to be vaccinated. Right. That would right. raise some significant concerns. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think probably if we look at it, maybe it's maybe it's cynically, but I think this is probably a bit more about liability. Um, yeah. And and certainly there's an element of encouraging, you know, trying to encourage people to to be vaccinated. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but um, it is really important. You know, I, I listened to the two um, the two clips you played and. And I really disagree with Professor Adarand that um, from a public perspective, public health perspective, we should be mandating vaccination. I think we're seeing people who are hesitant and concerned about taking the vaccine. And I think mandating it pushes them in exactly the wrong direction. Um, I think that, you know, people will be more resistant if this is something over which they have no choice. Um, and fundamentally, this is about, you know, our, our personal health decisions. Um, we we need to make them for ourselves. We need to consent to them, you know, willingly. And and this sort of idea that we should be coercing people, especially when, you know, and I'm not um, I'm not uh, uh, anti-vaccine by any means. Um, but you know, this is a, a vac- these are vaccines that are approved on a, an emergency basis. The evidence about them is still evolving. We've seen from our own you know public health officials that they've changed their direction about what to do for with respect to different vaccines that's continuing to evolve so i think it's natural for people to have questions and 
this idea that we should, uh, you know, re sort of reshape our society so that people require proof of vaccination to access different places is a it's a radical idea and it's one that we should really ask a lot of questions about and okay. not sort of assume inevitability okay well we're following it very closely thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it thank you all right welcome back to the show let's talk about this story that has shocked canada now the discovery of the buried bodies of indigenous children on the grounds of a former residential school in kamloops last night former senator murray sinclair who was the head of the truth and reconciliation commission that investigated residential schools issued a powerful statement on social media let's have a listen to a bit of that right now we did what we could but it was not anywhere near what we needed to accomplish and needed to investigate. And now we're beginning to see evidence of the numbers of children who died. We know that there were probably lots of sites similar to Kamloops that are going to come to light in the future. And we need to begin to prepare ourselves for that. Okay, Murray Sinclair last night. Let's discuss now with my guest, Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. He's the leader of the opposition in the House of Commons, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mr. O'Toole, thanks for coming on. It's good to be with you, Mike. Okay, you are calling on the Trudeau government here to take action on this file. You wrote a letter to the Prime Minister on this. What do you think the government should be doing right now? Well, I'm glad you played the clip from Murray Sinclair, who, of course, chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Their report had a number of specific recommendations on missing children, and, um, you know, there was always some indication of deaths at schools, but the 215 found in a grave in Kamloops is, is heartbreaking. And recommendations 71 to 76, the calls to action on uh, grave sites and identification and working with communities to provide closure. I've asked the Prime Minister, let's accelerate that. Let's have a plan by Canada Day to show we can we can get this done. I've pledged the full opposition support uh, in that effort to, to get it done. Because these are these are really quite easy to move forward. And I, I spoke about a family last night that, that got closure from a north uh, northern Alberta residential school 70 years after a woman had lost her brother at the school, didn't know where his grave was for 70 years. So this closure piece is, is what we can do in the immediate term as part of reconciliation. Okay, uh, Murray Sinclair in this video also calling on uh, the release of records, and you'll hear him refer here to the release of church records. Here is Murray Sinclair again. Stop hiding the documents to force the churches who have documents to disclose those documents so that we can get to the truth. Okay, do you agree with him there that there are documents being held by churches that should be disclosed? I think all documents should be disclosed. I don't know uh, which he's referring to. I know the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, now has a, a, a library and a collection that is maintained. If there are if there are additional ones that were not released to the to the commission, uh, they they should be uh, absolutely. Part of this is not only closure and and healing for the families and communities affected. We need to educate our, our our country. Everybody has a role to play in reconciliation. Um, fortunately, children now learn about it in school. I've talked about it with, with my children, talking about this horrific find in, in Kamloops. So we're making some progress in educating more people, but there's a lot of work to do, Mike. Okay. Mark Miller, the Federal Indigenous Services Minister, just a short time ago called on Pope Francis to apologize for the Catholic Church's role 
in, in running these residential schools. Uh, this is a, a call that's been out there in the past. Do you agree with him? Do you, should the Pope apologize? Well, I think the distinction here is, I think there was an apology from all churches involved, but I think some Indigenous communities have asked for that apology to take place in in Canada or on Canadian soil. So, you know, anything we can do towards reconciliation, I think everyone uh, wants to do. I, I'm, I'm holding the federal government to account because both yeah. uh, Conservative and Liberal governments, going back to the founding of the country, were part of a uh, what became a, a tear in the soil of Indigenous Canadians. And so that's what we can do in the short term. And uh, the reconciliation and and certainty for the families is what I'm pushing for now, recommendation 71 to 76. We need, I'd like a plan by Canada Day. Okay, but what about the, should the Pope apologize though? You just had the Indigenous Services Minister just a short time ago make a a very powerful statement saying the Pope, Pope Francis should apologize. I I know you're Catholic, I'm Catholic too. what should the Pope do here? Do you want to, you want to see the Pope apologize? Well, look, I, my understanding, all of this happened before I was even in Parliament, Mike, but I, my understanding, the churches involved, the United Church, the Catholic Church, all apologize. There have been some people saying that they'd like to see the apology in Canada by, by the Pope. What I don't do you control say, the Pope. What, what do you but say? Mr. Mr. Miller can, do, can move on 71 to 76. And every, everyone that had a role in this, uh, in this horrible system, going back to the earliest days of our country, needs to play a role in it. What can I do as opposition leader? Yeah. I can light a fire under the Prime Minister on 71 to 76, and that's what I'm doing. Okay, speaking to Federal Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole, uh, also another thing that Murray Sinclair, the former head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, said in his statement last night, was he just reminded Canadians that at one point, he had asked the previous conservative government for more resources to do a fuller inquiry into residential schools. They asked for $1.5 million to do that. This is back when Stephen Harper was the prime minister. And I just want to play that for you and get your thoughts on it. So here's Murray Sinclair on that. We submitted a proposal because it was not within our mandate. And we asked that it be funded by the government. And that request was denied. Looking back on that now, Aaron O'Toole, do you think the, the previous government, you were part of the previous government under Prime Minister Harper, uh, do you think the, the previous Conservative government should have should have funded that effort when, when they asked? Well, I learned about it this week. It was from 2009. I think you have to remember the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, Mr. Sinclair's report, was filed in 2015. So I'm not sure if they wanted to wait until the report. Um, I can't speak to what happened then. I want to spend the funds required now, move the departments, the, the, the historic records maybe at the provincial level. Anything that needs to be done needs to be done. And um, these calls to action, 71 to 76, which came out in 2015, they will require some funding and probably more than $1.5 million. So as leader of the Conservative Party today, Mike, it's got my 100% support. Let's get this done. Okay. Those recommendations included further investigations of these sites. We had more than 130 of these schools across Canada. This is going to be a very large undertaking. Uh, to search these sites using ground-penetrating radar. Then you've got all the other complexities uh, uh, around it, around the possible disinterment of bodies and returning them to their communities and trying to identify who these children were, how they died. I mean, this is huge, right? So the government this morning uh, talking about, I believe it was $27 million was the figure mentioned this morning uh, to be made available to search for other unmarked 
unmarked burial sites. Is that adequate in your mind? Well, I think we have to we have to fund what can be done, both in terms of investigating other sites, and and Mr. Sinclair's report did did highlight some of this. What what shocked people was there were thoughts there was only a small number of graves at the Kamloops School, and it ended up being 215, and it just reminded people of how horrific this was. And so let's go to all the sites. Some have been documented. As I said, I spoke about uh, the Kawatsu family last night, who, after 70 years, got to find out where little Johnny was, uh, who died. They, they, they weren't informed. They didn't know where his grave was. And they talked about how important, 70 years later, the healing was. So I think the state today owes it to, to the families and our commitment to reconcile our, our, our shame of the past with what we yeah. can do today to, to bring healing. And so, you know, I'm leading the opposition in a minority parliament. I've said to the prime minister, let's have a clear plan to deliver, including the funds required by Canada Day. Full support for me. Let's get let's get this done. The, the calls to action have right. been out there for six years and not really acted on. Well, I think the, I think you'd get a lot of support on that. Let me ask you about another comment that the Indigenous Services Minister made this morning, Mark Miller, a short time ago, uh, commenting on the calls by some people to remove statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, the country's first prime minister, the residential school system set up under his watch, and there have been calls to take down statues of Macdonald, and that's been done in some cities across Canada. Uh, and Mark Miller, the Indigenous Services Minister, had an interesting take on that this morning. I want to play this for you and get your thoughts on it. Here's Mark Miller. Knocking things down, breaking things, is not my preferred option. Um, turning my eyes away from things is not my preferred option. Looking at things as painful as they are, explaining why they are, is my preferred option. Okay, Aaron O'Toole, do you agree with him there? When he's talking about it's not his preferred option to tear down statues. Yes, I do. I've been talking about this for many years, Mike. We don't learn if we erase. Um, what we need to do is two things. Make sure that there's education. As I said, my nine-year-old son knows about residential schools, and I had a talk with with both my children. So there's some progress being made. But we also have to hold up uh, leaders and people that probably weren't given attention uh, in our history because of their Indigenous or minority status. When I was Veterans Minister in Washington, the only veteran I spoke about in the U.S. Congress was Tommy Prince, our most decorated Aboriginal veteran of World War II. Um, there's some incredible stories that weren't probably told because of attitudes in the past. So let's put the horrific acts in context. Let's learn. Let's not erase. And I think the more education, that is our commitment to reconciliation. But when it comes to the missing children, I, I can't stress it enough. I've, I've heard from a family directly how important that identification, that knowing where their family member is, how critical it is to healing, not just from that generation, it passes through generations. So let's move on 71 to 76 right away as part of a wider effort of reconciliation. All right, Aaron O'Toole, thanks for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Always good to speak with you, Mike. Be well. All right, welcome back to the show. Interesting comments there by the Federal Indigenous Relations Minister this morning, Mark Miller, uh, saying that he doesn't support the idea of tearing down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald for his role in the establishment of residential schools. He said it's not his preferred option. Just spoke to Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, said he agrees with that. Let's see what you think about it. Ryan in Vancouver. Hey, Ryan. 
Hey, Mike, the, the saying, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, um, bears out in this. And, and um, I have family members who went through the residential schools, and um, I just think tearing down these statues is a bad idea. We need to know, as gory of a history as it is, we need to know, and education is the key, and we absolutely have to understand where we came from and how not to get there and where we can go. Ryan, thanks a lot for the call. I agree with you on this one. I think it's a difficult issue, but again, I'd be guided by Murray Sinclair. as a guy I just got tremendous respect for. And when he said the former senator, he headed up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he said, look, maybe you could put up new statues, but tearing down old ones is just like anger. It's like revenge, and it's not going to get us anywhere. Catherine in White Rock. Hey, Catherine. Hello. Hi, what do you think? I disagree completely. I do not want to see murderers and criminals held high on a pedestal. I don't want to rewrite history, of course. This is not taking away what happened. It's simply not glorifying to our children why these people are on a pedestal. Let's replace these murderers with people who are truly heroes and write what they did in the history books. Explain to them. It just sickens me that the courage isn't there to do the right thing. You know, I just want to see politicians say, no, this is wrong. We do not need to look up, literally look up at these statues and say, right. oh, look at John A. McDonald. Look what he did. No, it's horrible. And we need to write this wrong. Uh, okay, so you disagree with Murray Sinclair, the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, when he said that tearing down statues is counterproductive to reconciliation because it smacks of revenge it smacks of anger and the path forward is working together into a better future not tearing stuff down but building things up right like i, I understand go ahead don't be complacent don't be complacent get pissed off and do something about it do you think you think murray sinclair is complacent yes give me a break oh my god Oh my God! Murray Sinclair is probably the most one of the most respected Indigenous leaders in the country. Headed up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process, and I think what what he said about this issue I, I found incredibly wise. And a lot of the, by the way, there were recommendations that came out of that commission on this topic, and it was not to tear stuff down, tear statues down, but maybe you build new statues up. You could fund indigenous artists, for example, to build new public works of art to better inform the public of the past. So building things up instead of tearing things down was the recommendation from that commission, and I support that. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the future of one of British Columbia's most important industries, and that's the forest industry. We got record timber prices going right now, a lot of forestry activity going on, lots of controversy as well, notably on southern Vancouver Island, the Ferry Creek dispute. We've had over 100 arrests there and more, nine more people arrested at anti-old growth logging blockades yesterday. Also yesterday, the B.C. government announcing a new plan for forestry uh, going forward. It includes more forest tenures for First Nations. 
Very notably, though, the government saying they will not intervene at the site of that dispute in Ferry Creek, where we've seen so many arrests here in the last few days. We've got a great panel standing by here to talk about this. But first, have a listen to Premier John Horgan here yesterday talking about the importance of this industry to B.C. As we all know, forests are at the heart of our identity as British Columbians. We work in them, we live in them, we play in them. Forests are essential to a healthy environment and they are part of what make our province a special place to live. We owe it to our children and our grandchildren to preserve BC's ancient forests. Ancient forests are our inheritance as well as our legacy. We created an independent review of old growth and we're committed to implementing all of those recommendations. Okay, you heard the Premier there talking about old growth forests, but notably also said they would not intervene into old growth logging happening in that Ferry Creek area, at least not immediately. Okay, let's discuss now with my panel. Sapora Berman is an environmental activist and writer. She's been on the front lines of that dispute in Vancouver Island. She got arrested there a few days ago. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Sapora. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this again. Also on the line, once again, Bill Dumont. Bill is a professional forester. He's a former chief forester for a major BC company, former member of BC Forest Practices Board. Bill, welcome back. Good morning, Mike, and good morning, Sapporo. Okay, I, I appreciate morning, both Bill. I appreciate both of you being here once again. Sapporo, let me go to you first. What are your thoughts on the announcement that you saw there yesterday? You heard the, the Premier talking about protecting old growth forests there, which I know is a key priority for you. What did you think? Well, it was good to hear the Premier talking again about protecting old-growth forests, but there was nothing in that announcement that protects more old-growth forests. And in fact, while they were having their press conference, more of the old-growth forest was being cut down, and BC citizens were being arrested for trying to stop it. So we've been hearing now for a year since the expert panel report promises that they're going to protect old-growth. Um, and then nothing's happening except more public relations and more press conferences. Okay. So I think people across the province were pretty disappointed yesterday. Okay, you did hear him say there, though, that they want to implement the recommendations in the report you referenced, and they will be protecting old growth. I guess that's supposed to happen down the line or in the future, I suppose. Is that what's happening? Yeah, it, it, it's been a year since the expert panel tabled that report, saying urgent deferrals are needed in at-risk old growth. Yeah. And then the government recommitted to uh, accepting the entire panel recommendations during the election because they were forced to, because British Columbians want moral growth protected. And that, that was in the fall. So what exactly are we waiting for? And why are we allowing more logging to happen of these old growth forests? And especially some of the trees that we're seeing in Ferry Creek that are over a thousand years old. So oh. they're falling. And yet we're saying we're going to protect them. Um, but you know, they're dragging their feet. And meanwhile, the industry is still logging. Okay, Bill Dumont, your thoughts? Well, uh, the the concern that's been raised over old growth, uh, I think much of it legitimate, uh, is also confounded by a lot of issues around uh, First Nations uh, rights and reconciliation. Uh, to me, the announcement yesterday was uh, endorsing the approach of respect for engaging in consultation with First Nations. And that's not what's going on at Ferry Creek. Uh, I would like to know um, what the plan is uh, for calming the violence that we're seeing at Ferry Creek 
and um, and how we're going to move forward. Uh, I think the idea that the government is they people want the government to step in and shut down the logging at Ferry Creek is ludicrous because the First Nations has agreed to it. And right. you know what's the plan to respect the needs and interests of First Nations uh, in in whose territory Ferry Creek is 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 has invited themselves uh, to. I mean, the, the protesters were not invited there. They've been asked to leave. It uh, First Nations community are like any other community. There's varying views there, but there is yeah. the community there has spoken, and uh, they don't want this conflict on their territory. You know, they they, they their territory contains an area in Carmana provincial park that has some of canada's largest trees it's a 16,000 hectare park which actually originally came out of one of the tree farm licenses there uh, 20 years ago so uh, within half an hour of where all these protesters are trying to block loggers they can go and see some of canada's largest and iconic old growth forests i mean this is the mcmillan park type of, of forest and uh, yeah. they, they they're just ignoring that Okay, Sapporo Berman, what do you say to that? It's not consultation if you're logging the old growth while you're talking about it. This new focus on consultation by the industry and the government is right now totally disingenuous. The government has been saying they're protected, they're consulting on protecting old growth for decades. And, and again, if the chainsaws are running, it's not consultation in good faith. First Nations are being put in an untenable situation and I've been talking to chiefs across the province who haven't been contacted on this so-called consultation. This is not just about Fairy Creek. It's about the at-risk old growth that the scientists have recommended to be protected across the province. And that's what the government committed to do. Yet what we're doing is, in fact, numerous First Nations are in court trying to stop mm. the logging of old growth in their territory. Look at the Blueberry First Nations. They went to court to get an injunction to start to stop the harvesting. They're now at, at the Supreme Court. So what did the provincial government lawyers argued? They argued that, that, the, uh, that the logging of these ancient forests is, is, is temporary. And after the logging goes forward, then the First Nations can have it back. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's okay. not consultation. Okay, Sapora, so what do you do, though, when you have a First Nation like the Pachidot First Nation that has clearly said that they support the logging that's going on. They're getting part of the profits there. It's a, it's a critical income stream for this, this small, isolated community. Yeah. What happens yeah, when you, what happens when you have a First Nation who says we support this old growth logging? Like, are, are like, would you say that First Nations should be allowed to cut old growth trees or are you saying that they should not be allowed to do that? I think that there's two questions that we need to look at here. Um, the first uh, that's really critical is, did government and industry go to the Patchadat Mission and say, would you like support and, and economic support for a vision that includes protection of that old growth? And some logging. They want to do some logging. That's fine. There's lots of second growth in their territory that is already being logged. In fact, the majority of the logging there is no longer in old growth. So did anyone put the option on the table that they could be supported? And I expect not. 
and the what I've heard from many in the local community. have a very large percentage of their territory is in parks and protected areas. So let's not exaggerate the situation that all of their territory is subject to logging. That's simply not true. That's not what I said. And it's like a lot of the rhetoric going around here is so exaggerated. For example, within 20 minutes of downtown Victoria, people can go into an old-growth forest in Goldstream Provincial Park. Beautiful, huge, iconic trees, just like McMillan Park. The same in Cape Scott on the north end of the island and all over the island. There are areas of old-growth that have been preserved over the last 100 years that people can see the iconic old growth that they are striving for. But, you know, the other day, Mr. Merkel, one of my colleagues is a professional who wrote the report, said that one of the costs or the potential cost of moving forward with stopping old growth logging everywhere, which seems to be the call, although it's a bit confused uh, about exactly what they're calling for, because, for example, the Haida and the Heltzik have logging companies that log in old growth forests. They, they, the cost is in the billions of dollars. And I think we need some thoughtful and careful consultation and engagement with communities and all those affected uh, if we're going to proceed with such a radical uh, cessation of, of okay. timber harvesting. All right, back to our old growth logging discussion with my guests, Sapora Berman and Bill Dumont. Lots of phone calls here, but Sapora, let me go to you first. And just before the break there, Bill was making the point. He says there's lots of old growth trees protected, but your response there. The idea that we've protected some old growth, and therefore we don't need to protect the, the trees that I saw when I hiked into the Fair Creek watershed, some of which are 1,000 and 2,000 years old, is, is actually just absurd. It's not a radical notion to say we should protect the at-risk old growth that's left in this province. It's about 1.3 million hectares, and that's what the scientists have recommended and what the government promised that they would do. So, so we can do this, and we can ensure that we still have uh, a viable uh, forest industry in the province. That 1.3 million is, is about 2.6% of our productive uh, land base. So it, it, we haven't protected enough to maintain biodiversity and ecosystem services, and that's what the scientists have said. And the idea that... Let's not exaggerate things. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let her her finish, let her finish. Go ahead, Sephora. So I also just want to put this into a global context. I think the reason that this has become such a huge issue, not only in Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island, but in BC, now nationally and starting around the world, why that big picture of that log became on that track became such a viral sensation around the world because the world is looking on in horror at what's happening because most countries have none left. And, and, okay. and the idea that these 1,000 and 2,000-year-old trees would be logged at this point in, in, in our history when we face an ecological collapse and the climate crisis, it's absurd, it's irresponsible. The government okay. already promised to make it stop, and they have to make it stop. Okay, Bill, go ahead. And the government has committed to do that, but in a respectful and consultative way. You know, British Columbia stands out globally for the amount of old forest that it's preserved. There's no other area that I'm aware of in the world that has preserved as much forest as we have in British Columbia. So to say the world is watching, yeah, they're watching because they know that B.C. has done a better job than others. Do we need to do more? 
Of course we do. And I'm not opposed, and you suggested I was, I'm not opposed to preserving additional areas of old growth. I'm in the tour business, so my, my clients like to see big trees, and availability of, of more areas is fine. But it's got to be done in a respectful and consultative way and without the violence that we're seeing in Ferry Creek. Okay. That's right. It's, it's, I, I, but that's it's where not the way to change public policy, and the government has okay, committed on. that they are going to do this uh, over time. Okay. Okay. Let me, let, me sque- let me squeeze a phone call in here, guys, because a lot of people want to get on. Dan and Richmond, go ahead, Dan. Please be brief. Go ahead. Hi there. Um, why do they have to cut these trees down? Is there not other areas? Like, is there not plenty of forests that aren't our old growth that they can cut down? Okay, yeah. Bill, how do you answer that? Bill Dumont. Look, there's, there's thousands of people go to work every day in B.C.'s forests. If you shut down one area, it puts additional pressure on other areas because there is an approved timber harvest and the idea that you can just walk away from one area and that's it. Remember, this license that Ferry Creek is in has already had two major withdrawals for provincial parks. It made sense. It contains these parks contain some of Canada's oldest and largest trees. This suggestion that somehow we're losing something every day that timber harvesting goes on is frankly nonsense. Okay, Sapora, what do you say to that? Of course there are other areas. Um, that they can be logging in. And, and the fact is that, you know, this is an industry, as the Premier has noted, has been based on maximizing fiber supply, on, on volume over value. And the shift that we need to take is to be getting more jobs per tree cut. It's secondary manufacturing. And, and it's, and it's a, a, a eco-forestry and not this massive clear-cutting. And that's going to take some time to design. But we can't allow the chainsaws to keep going on these last big old-growth areas while that transition happens. Okay. And that's why it's disingenuous to say that, that, that it, the consultation needs to happen respectfully. Yes, it does. But it's not consultation if you're logging the old growth while you're talking about it. Okay, running out of time. Edwin and Kelowna, please go quickly. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. Um, yeah. This uh, At one time, the natives of the First Nations were only allowed at certain times to fish on the Fraser for the salmon. Now we're dealing with the trees. If this is native land, how can anybody come in and say no? This is, this is what the government wants. Native land, they run their land, and everybody is against them logging. I don't under who, who, this is just okay. one big bingo ball. We have, we just only got a minute left, but Sapora gets back to an earlier point about indigenous involvement in old growth logging. But your thoughts, we got a minute here. Well, I would urge people to go out to the blockades and have a look, see who's leading those protests, interview some of those indigenous leaders, the elders and the youth and the indigenous leaders who are at the forefront of the blockades and who are being arrested. This is a complicated issue. That is really disrespectful to the leadership of the Pachydad Nation. Okay, Bill, go ahead. What do you want to say there? Well, it just, it's, it's ridiculous. The leaders of that community have asked the people to leave their territory. They don't like them bringing conflict between their own members to the community. These are small communities. They have a very, a range of views, but the idea that, that outsiders are coming in and fomenting conflict, you can see it on the TV every night. It's insulting to those people. Okay, go ahead. Uh, 30 seconds, Sapporo, go ahead. 
I stood on the blockade. There are elders, Pachadat elders, Dididat elders, youth who, you know, speak to them and, and get their perspective. These First Nations are being put in an absolutely okay. untenable position. It's our government and industry that are dividing First Nations communities and using their legitimate need for support to force them okay. uh, 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 and, and divide those communities. And, and we'll, have to, yes, we'll have to leave we it. We'll have to leave it there. Making. Thank you, Sapporo. We'll have to leave it there. We've run out of time. Uh, I'd love to have you both back on again because it's a terrific discussion every time. we got lots more calls we can't get to. So thank you to both of you once again. Sapporo Berman there and Bill Dumont. All right, welcome back to the show. The hot weather is here. It is a beauty of a hot day outside today. It's just been awesome the last couple of days. It's going to cool off here in the next few days, but taking a look at some of the long-range forecasts, looks like we could have a hot, dry summer, according to some of the reports. So I think that's great. You got to get outside, get grilling, okay? We got to get outside and do some barbecuing. I've got my eye on a brand-new barbecue. I want to get my next guest's thoughts on that. The one and only Ronnie Shuchuk. Hey, Mike, Rock, how are you? Rockin' Ronnie, best-selling cookbook author, international barbecue champion, just inducted into the Pacific Northwest Barbecue Association Hall of Fame. Ronnie, congratulations, man. Thanks, thanks. It was a great honor uh, to be to be recognized by the, uh, the PNWBA. Uh, not ah. the best-known organization, but it was nice to, you know, after many, many years in competitive barbecue, it was nice to get recognized. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. It's always great to have a Hall of Famer on the show here. Okay. So, Ronnie, I'm taking a look at, I'm in the market for a gas grill right now. Yeah. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. So I'm taking a look at the Napoleon barbecues. I just love them. A Canadian company, right? Napoleon? I, yes, I think so. Yeah. Those, they, Napoleon makes great, really great gear. Uh, so does Weber. There's a, there's a handful of really good name brands out there. And I would advise anybody who is considering buying a new grill, the most important thing is to buy a name brand. And you know why? Mm. Because of maintenance. Mm -hmm. If you buy some product that might be a lot cheaper, that you don't recognize the name of, you don't know whether in two years or five years you're going to be able to buy a new burner or replace parts. Because if you buy a good quality grill, it should last you 10, 15 years. You you have to replace a few things uh, periodically. But so I'd say go for a name brand. Yeah, for sure. And there's a lot of really good brands out there. Man, I got my heart set in this uh, Napoleon. I took a look at it a little while ago. Just, yeah, like, I don't I've think been, you'll go wrong. I've just been dreaming about it here. So what about um, like propane versus natural gas? Because I got like a natural gas furnace in my home, and I was thinking mm-hmm. of getting in like a natural gas line out to my backyard. What do you think well, about uh, that? I mean, it's really all about the cost of the installation because once you've got natural gas to your grill – you can't beat the cost or the convenience of it because yeah. it's just always on. You don't have to go and replace tanks. I mean, <laughs> you probably wouldn't be surprised to know that I have uh, uh, four or five propane tanks always at the ready in yeah, my backyard. <laughs> oh, but is there any difference in like the BTUs or anything like that between gas and propane? Yeah, propane's a little bit denser, has a little yeah. bit more energy per, per molecule, but when it comes out the burner, there's no real difference. It's the same. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What about what about a gas barbecue versus like traditional charcoal barbecue? I mean, you're a you're a purist, you know. I, you, I am. You, yeah. I, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a purist, but I'm also 
uh, I'm open to all forms of outdoor cooking. So I'm not okay. I'm certainly not don't disapprove of anybody who cooks with a gas grill. But charcoal um, or hardwood, you know, you can get lump charcoal or charcoal briquettes. You cannot beat the flavor of that uh, of real smoke and real fire. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I like to say that Kingsford briquettes, you know, the ones in the blue bag. Sure. Everybody has a nerve at the back of their skull called the Kingsford nerve. <laughs> and it was formed when, you know, people's dads would fire up the Kingsford back when they were five or six years old. And when you taste that or smell Kingsford, uh, and I have no relationship with the Kingsford company, <laughs> but it's really interesting because I think that barbecue is a, and grilled food is a comfort food. Yeah. And to hit that Kingsford nerve is very satisfying. Well, you know what? Now that you mention it, I, I'm just imagining the me- this memory of that uh, in my mind. And I yeah, think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, probably your listeners can smell that Kingsford. Yeah. Char- you know, you can smell the lighter fluid, maybe a little bit of newspaper yeah. burning, but then you smell the pure Kingsford briquettes. And oh. there's that's something wafting through your neighborhood that, that you know that there's going to be steaks cooking soon. Oh, man, I'm getting hungry now talking about this. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, Ronnie, let's talk about a couple of barbecuing basics, and then what I want to do is uh, we'll open the phone lines, and we'll get people to call you up with some barbecue like questions. Fun. So, Go ahead, Mike. What would you say, like, num- let's talk about some fundamentals. So let's talk about a, a steak. If you're doing a good steak on the barbecue, mm-hmm. what would be some of your top tips on doing a perfect steak on the grill? Sure. Well, first of all, have a really good cut of meat. I like a you know a, a, a strip loin or a, a ribeye steak. Make sure it's got lots of good marbling in it. The second thing I would say is to start your you know start your grill on high, yeah, and um, throw the steak on when the when the grill is nice and hot, uh, and then because you want to get some nice grill marks, which is uh, you can't get on a kind of medium grill. But then I always say immediately turn the heat down after you've got those grill marks because I think. Any meat benefits from more gentle cooking. So I'll get the sear marks going on my steak and then turn the heat down. And then, you know, some people say, oh, you should only turn a steak three times. Or uh, others say that you don't turn a steak until you start to see some juice coming up through the top of it. But my philosophy is turn it often. Once you get those sear marks, you know, your tongs are like a human rotisserie. And if you if you turn it fairly often, for one thing, it's something to do. <laughs> But the other thing is it'll cook more evenly. It'll be juicier. The other thing about steak that I think is absolutely critical is to not overcook it. And so I think everybody who who cooks, never mind those who cook outdoors, but every outdoor cook should have a button-style instant read thermometer. You know, there's... There's ones called thermopens that are super expensive, but you can get one at a, at a cooking store or a barbecue outfit uh, for, you know, 10 or 15 bucks. And it's an instant read thermometer, and you poke it into the meat, and I would not cook a steak much past uh, internal temperature at the thickest part of about 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Because and then you take it off the grill, let it rest for a few minutes, the temperature is going to come up from the residual heat, and you'll get a perfect, like, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and that meat's going to be perfectly pink and juicy. If you go too far and get to a higher temperature, it's going to be gray and and tough. You don't want that. Okay. What about brushing a steak with some steak sauce while it's on the grill? That's not a bad idea, but only if you or put it on at the very last minute. Yeah. One mistake that novice bar- uh, grillers make is they start putting barbecue sauce or whatever sauce on the steak early on 
those sauces are delicious, but they've got a lot of sugar in them. Yeah. And if you if you cook it for a long time, the sugar just burns and turns into char. In it it car it, it doesn't it's bad. So right. just use it. I always like to say use it as a finishing sauce. Right. Just finish it up on the grill. Paint it with some barbecue sauce at the last minute. And by the way, I don't. My personal taste is if you're going to have barbecue sauce, maybe have just some as a dipping sauce on the side, mm. so you can have a bite of that steak just pure. Hi, welcome back. Talking about outdoor cooking with my guest, Hall of Fame barbecue champion, Rockin' Ronnie Shuchuk, and your calls to him. And we got lots of calls, so let's go right to them. Tim Great. in Vancouver. Hey, Tim. Hey, guys. Hey, Rock. Just so a quick question. I inherited a barbecue. It's in great shape. When I open it up, I see that it looks like paint flaking. Now, one on the internet, they say that's often a buildup of grease, but it sure looks like paint. I just want to make sure I'm not uh, ingesting something that's not healthy. Like paint? Like a, paint flaking? Oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, where where do you see the paint flaking? So literally on the basin. So you open the barbecue, uh, not necessarily in the lid, but say the back of where the burners are. Now, once again, it's very fine. Uh, and I rubbed it and it kind of flakes off, almost like a Teflon-like when you see a crappy Teflon pan. And I went online and some guy swore that he was some barbecue guy. And he said that, once again, he said it's a build of a grease. It heats up, it coats the thing, and then eventually... I uh, guess let's loose and start flaking, but um, it's a okay. great like it's a broken barbecue high end, and it's not very old. So that's mm-hmm. my uh, uh, question. Okay, Ron. Well, I think it is probably a buildup of soot, but um, I think that your 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 best bet is, and, and I think it would be completely safe to do this, is just scrape it off and keep going. I don't think that I think once you scraped it off, I think you're 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 safe. Okay, do you believe Ron in, in a clean grill, keeping the, your barbecue clean? Uh, no, I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I do is this: after I've cooked, I do not clean the grill. I leave the the residue on the cooking grate because it's got oil in it and it protects the grate from corrosion. So what I do is, the next time I use the grill, I heat it up on high, and for a gas or propane grill, you want to do that for about ten or fifteen minutes, no longer than that. Because if you go longer, then it'll, it'll, it'll actually decay. The, the burners will deteriorate. But once you get the grill nice and hot, like five, five or 600 degrees, um, then you've kind of burned off whatever is remaining on the cooking grate. And you can easily scrape it off just before you start cooking your next steak. Okay. So that, that's the technique that I, I suggest. Okay, Kelsey on the line in Burnaby. Hi. Hello, Rock and Ronnie. It's your favorite niece, Kelsey. Nice. Hi, Kelsey. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I heard you on the way to my to work, and it made my day. I was so happy to hear your voice. Nice. <laughs> okay. Do you have a question? Have question. Okay. I do have a question for my uncle. Yes. Okay. So my mom and dad bought me an electric grill uh, last year for my birthday, but I'm noticing it doesn't have a lot of taste to it. So I'm wondering if there's any way that I can add some sort of flavor to it somehow well i mean you know you could put some wood chips next to the the burner uh, to create a little bit of smoke or you could cook cook your food on a on a grilling plank a cedar or hardwood grilling plank or i mean if you don't you know don't necessarily need smoke to make it flavorful i'd say just use a really great marinade or seasoning rub and you can even use smoked salt you know, Malden salt, and there's other products where you can add a smoky flavor without having to add smoke, just to make it part of the seasoning. So I'd say you should add a little bit more seasoning to your whatever you're grilling, and you'll get that flavor, Kelsey. 
Okay, Kelsey, thanks for the call. Maybe you can try that at the next family cookout there with uh, with Ron. Okay, let's go to Russell and Surrey. Hey, Russell. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I really appreciate it. I'm a ex-year 20-cake chef. I uh, ran cakes, taught cooks how to cook. And uh, the method is, uh, yeah, it's similar, you're similar, but uh, you don't play with a steak. It's a four-flip method. When you're cooking five, 600 steaks at a night, you got to have a system in this. I do it. I cook at friends' houses. I'm the cook everywhere I go. I still cook for a living, uh, but uh, not uh, get paid for it. I I do everything now. So you don't. But, so you don't uh, believe you don't believe in frequently turning it then. The no, steak. I don't play with. Don't play with the steak. But grill's got to be clean. Butter grill it. If you don't clean the steak off, you're going to get a char. You're going to get char on there. You're going to get burn on there. You're going to get crap left over from the time before. Um, yeah, I understand where he's coming from, but those, those are new methods. But the, the cake method is still, hey, you got to say the cake system. I've been through it. Uh, we we cooked on live uh, gas, and then we went to live okay. charcoal. I've cooked on mesquite in Mexico. I've cooked uh, on mesquite in Vancouver in the cake for a long time. I ran the primer. Okay, okay, Ru- okay Russell, th- 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 thanks for the call here. Let's see what the Hall of Famer has to say, say to you. Go ahead. Ron. Well, you know what? I, I, I appreciate his uh, comments, and if I were cooking 800 steaks, I probably would have a really clear system. But I think, um, you know, uh, I like to turn a steak because it keeps me occupied, too. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm not someone who is so doctrinaire. I'm not, I'm not mm. uh, uh, someone who is, is, is believes that anybody's got the right answer. It's whatever you're comfortable with. Okay, let's go to Orest in Swasson. Hi. Hi, thanks for taking my call, guys. Sure. Um, uh, concerning the uh, steaks, I just cooked up, uh, uh, barbecued five uh, strip loins that were fairly thick. Oh, and, uh, I usually did, uh, I did like, say, four, uh, four and three minutes aside with a lid down. Uh, they didn't turn out that great, and also the, the steaks did have a bit of, a couple of steaks had a bit of gristle in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we uh, be uh, cooking with uh, the lid up all the full time, or, or what's the answer? Uh, I, I always recommend I'm cooking with the lid down, uh, but there's certainly nothing wrong with cooking with the lid up. It's just going to take a little bit longer. I think the key here is to not go by time. Four minutes per side probably might be too long, depending on how hot the grill is. I think okay. to cook the steak to an internal temperature of like 125 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe 130 if you really don't like it rare. I actually cook mine to 120 and let it rest. I think to, the key is to cook it to that internal temperature versus time, and you'll get a better product. Okay. So that's why you recommend that instant read Absolutely. thermometer? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let's go to John on the line in Vancouver. Hey, John. Hi, uh, we're another family that's uh, gone meat-free this year, and I have a question. Um, do you have any experience with cooking impossible burgers or ah. burgers? You know, I haven't, but I think that they would be great. I, I have no, nothing, nothing against them at all, and I would just say that, to, you know, sometimes these kinds of burgers um, are a little bit more delicate than the meat ones, so just make sure that you coat, you know, a little... A little drizzle of um, of oil on the burgers before you put them on the grill, and make sure that you have a nice, cleanly scraped grill grill when you start out. But I, okay. I think that they'd turn out great. Squeeze and I love to one, grill vegetables, by the way. Squeeze in one more, like Kyla, that. Kyla, and sorry, but you got to go fast. Oh, hi there. I just um, I have a question about chicken and uh, what you would recommend for like uh, prepping the. 
the grill because I often find it sticks to the grill. 30 seconds, Ron. Okay, just remember to scrape the grill. Remember to put some oil on the chicken. And the last thing is to remember not to turn the chicken too quickly because if you leave it on the cooking grate, it'll actually release itself after a couple of minutes as as it chars. So just wait, be patient until it releases itself from the grill. Ron, thanks for coming on today, man. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Mike, and happy grilling, everybody. Get out there, and you can follow me on Instagram at Ron Shuchuk.